Hello and welcome to today's podcast from the Friedrich Ebert Foundation office here in Cyprus. It's a joint broadcast of the Ebert Foundation and Project Phoenix, a new partner to us. I'll introduce them to you in a second. Let me first introduce the topic to you. The COVID-19 pandemic had a huge impact on countries and societies all around the world and has been dominating the news for almost a year now. Usually we talk about the economic impact or the, the impact on vulnerable groups like the elderly or people with medical conditions who are particularly strongly affected. An often overlooked aspect of the COVID crisis is the impact it has on another vulnerable group, refugees, migrants, and asylum seekers. And this is where Project Phoenix and our joint project comes in. Project Phoenix in cooperation with us has produced, or is producing and has produced three studies, the first of which we're going to talk about today about the impact of the COVID crisis on refugees, migrants, and asylum seekers. And I'm, I'm very happy to have two members of Phoenix Cyprus, uh, sorry, of Project Phoenix here with us. The first one is Sarah Morsheimer. Morsheimer, Sarah Morsheimer. Um, she's a researcher at the Project Phoenix, but she's also a global law scholar at the Georgetown University Law Center in the United States of America. And she's the lead author of the report we're going to talk about today. Also joining us is Rishab Sandilya, who is the director of Project Phoenix here in Cyprus and is also responsible for the study as a whole. A very welcome to both of you. Uh, Rishab, before we go into the study, maybe you can tell our listeners a few words about Project Phoenix. Thank you for having us, Hibbert. Uh, so very quickly, Project Phoenix is a young hybrid European NGO and social enterprise that works to empower refugees, migrants and asylum seekers, uh, mostly in an urban setting, using social innovation as, as our playbook. Uh, we're currently running a pilot project in Cyprus. Um, as many of you know, it has the highest rate of asylum seekers in Europe, and we're here to see if our, our methods can work. Uh, our programming in Cyprus currently involves a very intensive fellowship program where we help refugees and migrants uh, become entrepreneurs and we train them uh, with professional skills. Uh, we also create innovative partnerships with other civil society organizations and NGOs, and we are currently running two innovative partnerships with uh, Caritas Cyprus, where we have online uh, English language classes uh, taught by professors in India. Uh, and we run um, a partnership with Zero Food Waste Cyprus, where we rescue food uh, and vegetables from the markets and redistribute them to refugees uh, and migrants. Uh, and our third pillar of our programming is a solutions-based research and advocacy pillar, which this research project uh, is part of. And the whole goal with this research is to perform transdisciplinary studies uh, to influence policy for systems change. Well, thank you. Um, let's go into the report. This is this is dealing with the impact of COVID-19 on refugees, migrants and asylum seekers. What was, what's the aim of the project and why is this project so important right now? Look, everyone's had a terrible time with COVID-19. I think there's no disputing that anywhere in the world. But I think what we tend to forget is that there are those on the margins who've had it much worse. Uh, and it's no different with refugees, migrants, uh, and asylum seekers. So for us, it was important to actually do some on-the-ground research to sort of prove this fact and bring it out there and show that people in uh, compromised situations, people on the margins have had a difficult time and this impact, this, this, this virus, this pandemic has had a huge impact on their lives. Uh, the aim specifically was to 
examine and investigate the different impacts that have occurred in the last six months uh, with the pandemic on refugees, migrants, asylum seekers, uh, and try and understand the deeper systemic causes of these impacts. Uh, because the whole idea in the end is to create policy and advise uh, institutions that work with refugees and migrants to try and create better policies to help them, especially as we go forward uh, into a second phase of, of pandemic-related lockdowns and restrictions. Sarah, how did you conduct the research? What's the methodology? Yeah, so first, thank you again for having me. Um, but so we basically went about this research um, looking at different secondary sources. We looked at um, publicly available news resources, um, academic sources, and social media. Um, and in addition to the research we um, found there, we did interviews with um, caseworkers um, at different humanitarian organizations on the ground. Um, we interviewed um, different experts in the field, um, as well as um, refugees, migrants, and asylum seekers. Um, and, and for this project, we, we call refugees, migrants, and asylum seekers RMAs, um, just for ease, um, to be inclusive. Um, but we also did a pretty deep dive into the um, legal decrees and the mandates that were, were put out by the, the government in regards to the, to the pandemic. During which period did you conduct the research? What's the, the latest information you have? Sure. So um, we started looking at this research um, when when. COVID um, entered Cyprus in the beginning of March, and we did this research um, through roughly the end of, of September 2020. How, how did the situation change? I wanted to ask the question to Richard, but I'm not sure if we have a technical problem. And if it's with us, if you can hear us, Richard, then please um, answer the question. If not, I would give it to Sarah. So how's the situation different today than it was in March, and has this affected the findings of the study? Yeah, thanks for asking that. I think that's a really important point. I think uh, the, as the situation itself with the pandemic is so fluid, I think it's also important to understand that the research timeline itself uh, and the research findings themselves have been fluid because we initially looked at the response of government uh, and sort of government mandates around the sort of first lockdown, which were in a sense quite harsh and quite unexpected. Uh, and people reacted in a very different way than they are right now, where we are in you know in early November, late October, when there have been almost a second set of lockdown rules coming in. So I think the first thing to remember is that the research has been conducted across different timelines and different eras and different types of restrictions and mandates. Uh, we also conducted the, the research in the summer when we were mostly mandate and sort of restriction free. Right. So uh, in some ways, this definitely affects the findings because the people we've spoken to, uh, especially in part two, which is a survey, will we'll have different will have different ideas and different opinions depending on when they were asked the questions. And I think this is something to remember. And it is a writer for the research. The experience for all of us of this pandemic here in Cyprus was quite harsh, in particular during the lockdown. I would I would expect it to be even more difficult for uh, refugees, migrants, and asylum seekers. Sarah, how has the pandemic affected the quality of life of this vulnerable group in a very specific, peculiar situation anyway? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think one of the overall general findings from um, this report was uh, just a general, um, very noticeable deterioration in the quality of life for RMAs. Um, in particular, we noticed um, impacts on personal freedoms, uh, livelihoods, um, economic security, um, 
mental health and well-being um, and, and impacts on personal development as well. If you look at access of information, a very important thing for, for these vulnerable groups, um, how did they access information during COVID and where did they get their information from? Yeah, so um, initially it was very difficult for RMAs to access clear information um, on what was happening. Um, this was for a number of reasons. Obviously, the situation in the very beginning was constantly changing. Um, uh, there was little, very little information of, about even what, what this virus was. Um, uh, and in, in general, there was pretty, um, uh, pretty haphazard nature of the messaging coming from, from the government. And most of these messages came either via um, television or through government websites, which um, were not particularly user-friendly. Um, and a lot of um, RMAs had difficulty navigating some of these complicated websites. Um, yeah, and, and in general too, um, of course we saw early on um, language barriers um, that were impacting access to information. A lot of the information was um, in English, um, Greek or, or Turkish only. Did, did local or international organizations try to help here with the language variation? Yeah, um, pretty early on, um, UNHCR, um, Caritas, uh, the Dignity Center, um, um, and others filled in the gaps by um, translating some of these um, advisories and putting them on their social media sites um, and spreading them out through other different communications platforms um, uh, to be able to get the word out to, to RMAs. Did, did the government respond to this problem by, by improving the services or things remained uh, constant? Yeah, yeah. Over time, um, in, in the past few months in particular, we've seen um, improved communications. Um, they've started to publish the information in multiple languages, um, languages which um, many RMAs are more familiar with. Um, they've also um, put informational posters and, and um, shared those in, in different communities. Um, but we do still see um, a bit of a gap in terms of, of information and access to that information, um, which I think um, is a concern, um, especially as we're kind of seeing the pandemic worsen um, around the world right now. If you look at the impact of these movement restrictions during the lockdown on RMAs, so refugees, migrants and asylum seekers, much better to call them RMAs from now on, um, what were the specific restrictions that had the most impact on them and how did the lockdown look for RMAs in general? Yeah, so um, starting, I believe it was the 23rd of, of March, um, there were um, prohibitions on any unnecessary movement outside of the home. Um, that's when they started closing parks and, and markets and places of worship. Um, there were a few exceptions for, for work um, and exercise, but then um, later, I believe, uh, 31st of March is once they started um, limit limiting people to going outside to once per day. And then um, they required an SMS uh, text message um, to uh, obtain permission to leave the home. And um, this was controlled by, by police and other government officers who would check IDs and, and the validity of these SMS um, permissions um, to be allowed outside of the home. And a lot of a lot of RMAs found these um, rules to be complicated. They were generally either in in English or Greek, and um, it led many to um, unknowingly breach these rules. And in some cases, um, some were even fined. Many of the RMAs lived in detention centers. Others outside. How did the uh, restrictions impacting life of those people in the detention centers? And how were the conditions in those detention centers during the pandemic? 
Yeah, so um, uh, I think it, it was on April 8th, um, 2020, when um, the government mandated that no one could enter or leave any reception or, or detention centers, um, except for uh, new arrivals and humanitarian or medical medical aid workers. Um, there was also an exception for um, residents traveling um, to and from work. But in general, even prior to the pandemic, these uh, reception centers were um, hugely overcrowded and um, this made social distancing pretty much nearly impossible. Um, one uh, doctor that we interviewed who volunteers um, at Kofinu, um, she uh, talked about how the camps um, pretty much everywhere on the island are severely cramped and um, that there's limited resources for um, sanitation and there's a lack of, of washing facilities, um, which leads to really um, unhygienic situations, um, not just for the spread of COVID, but for other diseases as well. Um, and at the height of the restrictions um, around end of May, there were um, 700 people in Purnara camp um, and this number uh, far exceeds its, its capacity. Um, there were also issues of, of um, housing minors alongside adults. There were complaints of, of sexual harassment issues. Um, there was a scabies outbreak, which again kind of shows just the extent of the um, unsanitary conditions there. There were, though, um, organizations um, like the Cyprus Refugee Council um, that were advocating for the removal of, of immunocompromised and, and vulnerable, vulnerable people um, from, from these camps and from these centers. And after some of this pressure, they, uh, the asylum service started to allow people, um, to, uh, 10 people a day to, to leave the camp, but only if they could present um, a valid address. And for many, this was very difficult unless they already knew um, people living in the community. So as of the end of September, um, Purnara still is, is closed. There are currently, I think, uh, 265 individuals, um, again, as of end of, end of September, um, and some of them are in quarantine. And there still continue to be new arrivals coming from, um, from Lebanon and Syria um, into the camps. How did the RMAs outside the camps fare? Did those living in urban areas fare better? Was their experience different from those in the detention center? Were there other restrictions that hit them harder? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, life looked pretty different for those living in urban areas. Um, they often had um, struggles um, trying to access different essential services, getting to work and in general kind of navigating um, their daily life became very complicated. So as I said previously, um, just struggles to to send the SMS um, messages forced a lot of RMAs to um, to go outside of their homes because they needed these essential services or items um, at the risk of, of being arrested or, or fined. Um, there was one case um, in particular, one asylum seeker um, in Nicosia that we interviewed whose, whose flatmate um, only speaks French and he was unable to navigate these SMS rules to get permission to go to the bank. And on his way, he was stopped by police and, and fined 300 euros, um, which uh, was a fine that he, he struggled to pay. Um, and we've heard other accounts of this from other organizations um, for, for RMAs who unknowingly violate these, these mandates. And um, it can be for multiple, multiple reasons. Either they use the incorrect reason, they put the incorrect reason in the SMS um, for their going out, or they're out too long, um, not within the hours prescribed. Uh, and, and one other thing that we also saw was um, police 
rounding up armies living in the street or who were sheltered in, um, in churches and mosques um, in the old town and they would move them to um, Punara camp. Um, and they justified this on health grounds claiming that they were in um, unsanitary and, and cramped conditions that um, could spread COVID-19, COVID even though they were putting them in, in Purnar, which is um, also very cramped and, and unsanitary. Something to that story there. So I, this is something I witnessed as well when I, I live in Nicosia and I was in the old town. So a couple of things I saw there were, were I saw discrimination in the sense that officials would, would check the SMSs of anyone who didn't look separate. And this was very clear and this has happened multiple times. Uh, but also about the police rounding up people, uh, as I remember being in the old town on the day when um, they went into this house, which had a, housed a bunch of asylum seekers uh, and gathered them. And even though the asylum seekers showed them valid proof of registration and their address being in the old town, uh, they were still put in buses in bus to Purnara, uh, which, which, you know, which contravened anything that they were justifying this, this reason for, because they were saying they were picking up the ones who didn't have... Uh, registered addresses and the ones who were sleeping rough. But then they also ended up picking up a bunch of people who were registered to live in the old town and did move them to Purnara, which, you know, ironically was was a very cramped camp. And then there's the story of the of the the disappearing scabies uh pandemic or the breakout in the camp because initially there was this huge hue and cry of of, of breakout of scabies and saying in, in some ways that they use this to justify the, the stronger restrictions. But in the end, as we, we found out over the last couple of months, and, and we spoke to people who work in the camp and they said apparently there wasn't a breakout of scabies. And if if there was anything, it was only one person. Um so you know this has been one of the funny incidents and rather ironic incidents that come out of the of the camp uh, both and also the the, the, the stories in, in, in the urban areas. What, what about healthcare? Since we, since we are on the issue, how was access to healthcare during the pandemic? Was it better, worse? Did it stay the same? Yeah. Um, so, so prior to um, the COVID-19 pandemic, there were already um, systemic barriers to accessing healthcare for a lot of RMAs. Um, they did have access to emergency medical care. And then in, in 2019, um, the National Health Service was introduced, uh, but this was only available to recognize refugees and some in some cases, some migrant workers. But all other asylum seekers uh, still uh, fall under the, the previous health system, um, where so they could only uh, seek treatment in public inpatient um, and outpatient departments. And oftentimes they had uh, difficulty booking appointments and there was long wait times. Once COVID arrived, um, there were difficulties with, with testing. Uh, initially, uh, almost no RMAs had any um, access to tests unless they were, were new arrivals um, who were tested upon entry to the camps um, or they had symptoms or were found through, um, through contact tracing. Um, later on, once private labs started offering the tests, anyone had the option of, of paying for a test, which initially cost 110 euros, but then was reduced to 85 euros, um, but due to these to the high costs and and the possible need of of a translator, a lot of RMAs were were unable to um, access the testing. And you know, as we've seen again, I think throughout Cypriot society and throughout the world, um, access to regular healthcare during the pandemic um, has been limited. You know, things have been shut down um, and closed. Different different outpatient hospitals were closed to walk-ins, with the exceptions of of emergencies. So this really impacted people who um, had other underlying or chronic health conditions. Um, so this, the only option um, for, for RMAs really was to call health centers and doctors on the phone. 
But this is a big issue um, with with a language barrier. Um, this generally required intervention from a local organization to translate the call. But then here we have issues with with privacy, with with miscommunications, and this this led many um, RMAs to to kind of ignore their medical issues or push off seeking medical care, uh, which obviously does not have have good results. Um, and then in general too, we saw um, a, a pretty big mental health impact. So we saw uh, we looked at one study where um, it showed one in four adults in Cyprus. Um, having high levels of, of stress during the lockdown um, and a, a significant number of, of those saying that their quality of life had, had changed. And we believe that um, RMAs had similar experiences um, based on our research due to just increased anxiety with, um, with loss of livelihoods and, and other challenges that they were experiencing. But a lot of NGOs um, and organizations stepped in um, to, to provide counseling and, and other types of support. So they would use online video conferencing and, and social media to kind of spread awareness of, of some of these mental health issues um, and, and to provide tips to deal with, with stress um, during the height of the lockdowns. Bishop told us already in the, in the introduction that Cyprus has currently or had uh, one of the highest or the highest percentage per head of uh, asylum seekers in, in the European Union. Did the pandemic affect the procedures, how these people were dealt with? Yeah, so um, so in Cyprus, um, just a little bit of background about the asylum procedure. So it, it's a it's a single procedure where they look at both refugee status and subsidiary um, protection status um, through an application to the asylum service of the Ministry of the Interior. Um, this this application is then sent to the Aliens and Immigration Unit at um, the Department of the Police in whichever city the applicant lives. Um, and then for those who are in detention, um, the applications are received within within the camp centers there. So in March uh, through through June 2020, most of the, the government offices were closed to the public. So at this point, um, RMAs had pretty much no access to migration offices, lawyers, or, or any asylum procedures. So new arrivals could not lodge any sort of applications. And they were then instead transferred to Pranara, where they were held. But asylum applications um, that had already had their interviews, they could still be um, processed. Um, and the national and appellate courts continued to receive legal aid um, uh, applications and appeals. But otherwise, all other, other proceedings were suspended, um, with the exception of, of a few urgent cases. Thankfully, a few organizations, Cyprus Refugee Council in particular, were able to um, provide legal to support to some in the community uh, and, and those uh, who were detained. Um, they used Zoom and, and WhatsApp and, and other different um, platforms to be able to provide assistance. Uh, as of the end of September, things have improved and, and um, they've started um, resuming looking at applications, but um, the closures have still had a pretty significant impact. Um, they've increased the waiting time um, pretty significantly. Um, in, in Cyprus, um, the average asylum decisions can take um, anywhere from 36 to 16 months, and some people have waited years uh, for a decision. Those who did not manage to enter the procedures, did, were they treated differently? Did they have less, less access to state aid or, or did they have different rights to those who were already uh, in the pipeline of, of processing their applications? Or so there are two classes amongst those asylum seekers, those who are already in and those who tried to become uh, to ask for asylum, but the system didn't allow them in? 
Um, well, I think one impact that we, we saw for those who were not um, allowed to, to um, send in their applications is they were kind of stuck um, in a difficult position of, of not being able to, to seek uh, benefits. Um, and so there were other implications that came from, um, from not being able to, to apply. But in, in general, uh, once those you know, restrictions were lifted, they were able to, to apply again. But again, now they're going to be experiencing a significantly longer wait time um, than they might have initially, even though, unfortunately, the, the system still takes a very long time. What was the economic and financial impact on, on uh, RMAs? I understand that some of them at least are allowed to work uh, in branches like uh, hospitality and tourism, which were particularly hard hit in Cyprus due to the COVID pandemic when the island was first uh, basically locked down and nobody could come. And then when people could come, very few of them were tourists. So the tourist industry suffered. And I would assume that those asylum seekers or RMAs that had some jobs were particularly badly affected by this. Can you say something about that? And maybe also in general, if the, if the crisis affected the benefits of RMAs, were they, were they cut down during the crisis? Yeah, um, absolutely. So um, in Nicosia and Paphos in particular, um, there was a lot of job loss um, because of long-term closure of a lot of establishments there um, that employed RMAs in, in tourism and catering um, businesses. So, so with this, this job, just job loss and um, loss of livelihoods, there was, this was coming already um, on top of a lot of um, difficult financial situations for, for RMAs um, due to some of the more systemic reasons, um, including just like limited access to the labor market, a lack of access of, of skills or education, um, and in general, lack of, of social capital and, and networks in Cyprus. So, but, but we did see uh, some RMAs worked in essential services, um, so like supermarkets and, and the health sector. So they were able to maintain employment, um, but this work uh, was often pretty stressful and there was, a, there was difficulty maintaining um, distancing guidelines. We also too saw, saw an impact with um, access to, to banks. So um, a lot of RMAs do not bank online. So they had to go in person and um, their issues with long lines and, and crowding limitations. So um, a lot of um, RMAs were struggling to, to take out funds and to, to pay rent. And so, so associated with this are, are benefits. And um, in mid-March, um, the Ministry of Labor, um, the Welfare and Social Insurance um, offices closed to the public. Um, and they did their work solely over um, the phone and, and email, um, which caused a lot of frustration and confusion. Um, for RMAs who were without work and who were relying on these on these social benefits, a lot of RMAs reported um, long delays um, in receiving their benefits um, in March, April, and May. As of as of September, the situations improved, but we still heard from from some RMAs that they still continue um, to face pretty dire financial circumstances and um, are still experiencing some delays um, in receiving their, their social welfare and housing benefits. Um, the government um, has also uh, released aid packages to help keep businesses um, alive and to, to ensure um, uh, employment. And while this has benefited um, RMAs who are working in regular um, employment, um, most other RMAs who are working either regularly or in, in temporary um employment, they 
um, have not seen much benefit from from these aid packages. Um, and in fact, a lot of employers are choosing to to lay them off instead. Just to just to cut in here, I mean, there's no percentage about how many RMAs are in, not RMAs, but asylum speakers specifically are in irregular employment. But we do know that there's a large large number of them who work irregularly in the construction fields and, you know, in, in fields related to transport and sort of manufacturing, you know, in gas stations and things like this. And especially with the long-term effects of the pandemic and the economic slowdown being felt uh, in the construction sector and the sort of related sort of manufacturing transport sectors, uh, a lot of these irregularly employed RMAs have not returned to work. Uh, and this has seriously impacted their, their livelihoods. What, what about those who were on the way to employment, those who were either in schools or in other educational facilities or who were actually training and try, trying to acquire skills in order to enter uh, the labor market? What, what, was, what was the situation like for those people prior to the pandemic and how did the pandemic affect those people? This is, this is interesting and I'll take this because Project Phoenix is actually running some kind of courses that focus on things like skills development and training uh, and working with, uh, with RMAs to get them into the market. It's a labor market themselves. Uh, and to be, enti to be entirely honest, the situation is quite bleak. Uh, a lot of potential job offers or job situations that did exist, opportunities for further trainings and skill development have either been stopped or will be stopped because of the restrictions in place. Uh, because a lot, while a lot of things can be taken online, certain things like job skilling, uh, physical job skilling when you're working with machinery and these kinds of things cannot be taken online. So in a sense, they've all been stopped and life goes back on pause, especially with a, with a second uh, lockdown expected. What about gender? How did women, well, how women uh, were affected by uh, the COVID? I assume that this is a specific group which is vulnerable in, in other ways than, than male RMAs. What was the impact on them? Yeah, so um, so we've seen that this, this pandemic has had a gendered impact around the world, um, but especially um, here in with certain um, RMA communities, um, these, these existing gender inequalities um, have been exacerbated. Um, so one thing during the lockdown we saw um, with increased time in confinement um, in spaces with it, abusers, there is an increased threat of, of gender-based violence. Uh, UN Women stated that um, domestic violence helplines in, in Cyprus uh, registered an increase in calls by 30%. Uh, in general, too, there was um, increased pressure on, on women um, in general to take on more domestic and child-rearing responsibilities as compared to men, um, you know, on, on top of any other, other work that they might have been doing. Um, Uh, we also um, noted less um, access to contraception and, and sexual and reproductive health care um, during the lockdown, which, which is a big concern. And, and in general, these, these pressures and added stresses um, also resulted in, um, in declines in, in mental health um, for women as well. The way I understand it, there's really a gender aspect in your research. So you also specifically looked at gender sensitive issues, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we definitely try, uh, tried to take a gender-sensitive approach to our research. Um, in um, our interviews, um, we interviewed more, more than half of them were, were women, and we interviewed women RMAs. Um, and in part two of our, of our survey, it um, is going to include a representative sample of women, and we also included um, gender-specific questions um, related to, to either um, gender-based violence or, or caregiving or access to reproductive health care. And those things, and and we we hope that 
by using this gender sensitive approach, um, we're going to be able to, to offer um, more effective recommendations for, for some of the specific impacts that, that women RMA face. A peculiarity about Cyprus that not maybe not all of our listeners are aware of is, is, is the fact that the island is divided. Uh, since the Turkish military intervention in 1974, in the south of the island, the internationally recognized Republic of Cyprus that represents internationally all of Cyprus, but effectively uh, is only the Greek separate government is only in control of the south of it. The Greek separates are living and we're very much talking so far about uh, how things look like in the Republic of Cyprus. In the north, where the Turkish Cypriots are living, in the internationally not recognized Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, the COVID crisis was also obviously ongoing. And it might be worth looking into the situation in the north. What can you tell us about the differences between the situation of RMAs who were in the north of the island and those in the south? Um, thanks, Ivet. I think there's, there's a couple of interesting things to note about the DRNC. One, of course, because of the closure of the of the crossing points, it's been really hard to get information uh, in the TRNC. It's also been hard to get reliable information uh, from the TRNC. So we're working off a lot of estimates, and we've we've been you know shaped our interviews on the basis of discussions we've had with our partners uh, in the TRNC, an organization called Voice uh, Voices of International Students, which is a representative body for international students uh, in the TRNC. Uh, why am I talking about students? Uh, particularly because, as you know, uh, as you may know, there's not a lot of actual refugees or migrants and asylum seekers in the TRNC. Uh, boats that land, people that land in the TRNC uh, tend to walk across the Green Line and claim asylum in the Republic of Cyprus and don't actually end up sticking around uh, in the TRNC. So what you have there is essentially... Uh, about between 90 and 120,000, and that's a that's an you know in, inaccurate estimate uh, of uh, international students, foreign students who are studying at at the at the in the TRNC, and that place has sort of blossomed as a hub for universities uh, and migrant workers. So this is the combination, in a sense, of migrants who are there. So that's that's very different from the ROC, where you have asylum seekers uh, and refugees. Now, a large proportion of these students are from South Asia, West Africa, and the Middle East in the TRNC, uh, and these migrant workers as well. And they were, you know, stuck in the sense that they couldn't return to their countries once the lockdown and the pandemic sort of hit the TRNC. The TRNC had quite a radical response in the sense that they locked down quite early after the first cases. Uh, things were much, in a sense, much harder there than they were in the Republic, partly because of the economic situation there, the Turkish lira crashed. So things were, in a sense, were much worse there, and it had a worse impact on uh, the students and migrants in the TRNC. Um, there were reports essentially around April and May of, of students and migrants going hungry. Uh, Voice was part of one of the organizations that actually got together with other NGOs and some local municipalities to provide food packets and sort of blankets and these kinds of things to make sure that people uh, in need were taken care of. Uh, and we also observed the RMAs or the, the students and, and migrants in, in the TRNC getting caught in the political crossfire. Uh, as you may know, there was recently an election uh, for president in the TRNNC, which uh, back in March, the prime minister, Essen Tatar, who then became president last month, uh, you know, won. But he, he used the students as, 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 as sort of fodder uh, and, and, you know, and bait and sort of made remarks about cleaning them out from the TRNC uh, and sort of ridding them from the country. And this was quite a controversial uh, situation, which he tried to backtrack from. Um, 
Thankfully, things have improved in the TRNC as of now. Uh, this is now late September, early October. Uh, there's very few students from our research that we found who are in, in need, and, and the things don't seem to be uh, so bad like they were earlier uh, in the spring. We don't know what's going to happen in the coming months. Uh, there, there is an expectation that things will lock down there again, uh, and that given the large student body, uh, things could take a turn for worse, and you know, it, we're keeping an eye on the situation. If we summarize what we've heard so far, then the, then the impact on both sides was really, really dramatic on this particularly vulnerable group. What are, what are your recommendations? What could be the steps forwards to improve the situation? And given that COVID is with us for a while uh, and it's currently getting worse, particularly in the South and possibly in the North as well. Um, so what are the recommendations and how could Cyprus address some of the issues and, and the negative consequences of the pandemic? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, moving forward, we're hoping to be able to use um, part two of the of the research um, uh, to be able to kind of refine some of our, our recommendations. But but in general, some some more just very like specific um, some recommendations that we have moving forward um, that will improve the live lives of MRAs um, is to, um, again, just increase um access of information um, from the government. Uh, we're seeing in increasing um, mandates again as, as the COVID situation is getting worse. Also increased access to, to health care, to, to legal assistance and to education um, throughout, uh, throughout these times. Um, also Im improved uh, conditions in reception centers, um, uh, better sanitation and less crowding and, and more wash stations. Um, another uh, thing that would be immensely helpful would be a regular regular distribution of, of benefits. Um, so many RMAs rely very heavily on them. And then also um, training law enforcement um, to be more uh, to be better able to deal with RMAs and uh, language barriers that might exist and to have training on, on issues of discrimination as well. Um, yeah. You, you, you want to add anything there? Could, could the overall system be improved in these times of crisis, which really expose probably the, the weaknesses of the system and, the, and the, yeah, the mechanisms that are not functioning very well? Is this also the crisis as a chance for, for substantial improvements of a more systemic kind? Absolutely. I think there's two things I want to state here. Um, the first thing is, I don't think the Cypriot government on both sides reacted in a sense that they were going after RMAs with their decision making in this process. I think they were dealing with a fluid situation. They are making decisions on the basis of uh, technical experts in the field telling them what to do. Uh, and they went ahead and made decisions without thinking of the impact of, you know, of these decisions on the lives of people in the margins. Uh, but what this pandemic has done, though, is exacerbated existing systemic faults, right? So let's take the example of healthcare here, right? The reason why RMAs had restricted access to healthcare and it got worse in the pandemic is because the healthcare system doesn't cater to them. Right now, they're not, a, they're not allowed to use ESE, which is the national healthcare system. They have access to healthcare, you know, in one in the old hospital, one unit that serves thousands of people in Nicosia. So the the um, the goal here with the research and with the systemic stuff is to is to look and understand the different systemic issues that have led to these exacerbated problems, right? Like Sarah talked about the 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 uh, the economic and social impacts, right? One of the reasons why we've had these so these economic and social impacts is because the access to the labor market is very restricted. They have gone ahead and reduced or limited the number of fields that are asylum seekers specifically can work in. 
uh, and these are mostly menial jobs that people separates don't want to do so one option would be to go ahead and open up some of these fields allow them to work in self employment allow them to work in more fields and this is something that's particularly disturbing and this is something we shared last week uh, is that the department of transport has taken it upon themselves to interpret a government circular recently to stop issuing driving licenses to asylum seekers now this is a hugely problematic situation because delivery and driving is one of the major sources of legal employment for asylum seekers so tomorrow will not only will the average cypriot not be able to get their home delivered frappe and let's face it this country lives on home delivery because the asylum seekers are not going to be able to you know to, to work as as drivers and delivery boys but you're also then depriving them one of the major legal sources of income and you're going to push them even further uh, into working with irregular jobs and in in a situation where the economy is completely stagnating there are no irregular jobs available um so you know this this is this is the this is the kind of stuff we're trying to bring up like there are deeper systemic issues at fault and at play that need to be addressed and we're trying to highlight this through our research and we're hoping with part 2 uh to you know have the survey but also then write a white paper in part 3 which specifically talks about solutions informed by our findings in part 1 and part 2 but what exactly do you in part 2 So part 2 is going to be a detailed survey we've right now conducted 100 uh we're aiming for 100 respondents across the island talking to uh refugees migrants asylum seekers to understand specifically the individual impacts on their lives of the pandemic um so far we've gotten up to 75 um respondents so we're very close to to finding out uh, or reaching a minimum number there a uh, decent sample and we will be actually sharing some of the the findings from part 2 the interim findings from part 2 uh, at the event and the live stream we're having on November 12th where we're launching the report in collaboration with the with FES uh we also invite people who are listening in to access the report which is available uh on the website of FES and also on Project Phoenix's site to have a look in more detail about this Excellent. Thank you so much for all of you. I don't know Sarah, you want to add something or is there any point that's important to you? Um no, just in general I, I hope uh, all of the listeners will join us for the event and um stay tuned for uh, part 2 um and our white paper. I couldn't have concluded it better. So thank you so much uh, both of you Rishab and Sarah for for a wonderful uh, conversation, a very very interesting podcast. So stay tuned. You can find the podcast on our website fscypress.org. Please tune in on the to the event on the 12th of November and also check out the website and the platform of Project Venus. Thank you for listening and we will follow up with further podcasts on the issue on both up, uh, both reports coming so please check our websites regularly. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.